The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ. Christ. Thanks, Carter. Um, So... uh, Many of you know that uh, in partnership with two churches in Nashville, St. George's Episcopal and West End Community Church, Christ Prez uh, is one of the sponsoring churches for the Nashville Fellows Program, which is about a nine-month intensive uh, for recent college graduates to help them uh, launch well into life in the local church, uh, faith and work uh, integration, and uh, adulting. And, uh, and so we actually have all of the Nashville fellows with us from all three churches uh, this morning. They do a little tour of all three of the churches to get different flavors and such. But I want to ask the Nashville fellows to stand uh, uh, just so we can recognize you. And, and uh, good to have all of you with us. This morning, I love how they're all squeezed into one row. Uh, y'all can stay standing, standing or be seated for the rest of the service. It's up to you. Um, but uh, great to have you all with us. Uh, and uh, and so, so we're in Galatians. Uh, Galatians is this remarkable book. Uh, and um, Paul approaches his subject matter with a, a certain degree of, of intensity. Um, you get a sense very early on that there's a lot at stake. Uh, in the book of Galatians. And so, um, so what I want to do this morning is to start with a little anecdote um, involving Margaret Thatcher. So uh, Margaret Thatcher, Prime Minister of the UK, and uh, one day, she tells a story about how one day she was visiting an assisted living center, specifically the memory care unit in an assisted living center, and uh, she relays an anecdote where she was uh, shaking hands with, with an elderly woman uh, in this uh, memory care unit, and the woman was uh, completely unaware that she was shaking hands and, uh, with and having a conversation with uh, a world-famous global leader, and Margaret Thatcher asked the woman, do you know who I am? And the woman answered, no, dear, but... Uh, If I were you, I would ask the nurse. She usually knows. (laughs) The theme of Galatians 
We're being pointed not to a nurse, but to a physician, a great physician, Jesus Christ, uh, who wants us to have repeated reminders, lest we forget not only who we are, but whose we are. We are in Christ, which means, and this is the memory that the Apostle Paul wants to stir in letters like Galatians, in Christ we are chosen, adopted, beloved, kept. We belong. We belong. God loves you. Christ would have you know, as much as God loves Jesus Christ. I'm gonna unpack some of the reasons why we know this to be true. But first, I wanna tell you a little bit about a little someone who reminds me every day how loved I am, and I'll share a little picture of her with you. If they'll put that up on the screen, please. Her name is Lulu. Lulu is our dog. And at our house, I am usually the one who rises first, typically two to three hours before the next person. And so Lulu and I have a daily ritual, a daily liturgy, a daily routine where I grab all my reading material. I put a big pillow uh, right next to me. She sits on that pillow and the very first thing that we do is we look into each other's eyes. I know it sounds a little weird, a little bit creepy, but she won't settle down until we do this. And so she'll look, look me in the eye and I'll look her in the eye and I'll pet her ears and, 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 uh, and I'll talk to her a little bit. But she'll give me this look, breaking eye contact, no breaking of eye contact at all. She'll give me this look and the look says, in my eyes, you can do no wrong. In my eyes, you can do no wrong. We call her the greeter. That's actually the nickname we've given her, the greeter, because every time we walk into the room, she is beside herself, so ex supremely excited to see us, and uh, she'll grab a toy or something for show and tell, and, and again, give us that look. You can do no wrong in my eyes. I'm so happy to be with you. And this is why I tell people Sometimes I want you to think that I am the person that my dog thinks I am. And what Paul wants us to understand is, you are the person that your dog thinks you are. And much more. Meaning that because of Jesus Christ, you can do no wrong in his Eyes. I'm going to unpack that here in the next few moments. And here, here are the headings we're going to use today. Us in Christ, Christ in us, and grace when we stumble. First, us in Christ. Uh, the theological terminology for this is union with Christ. The, uh, this term in Christ it's one of Paul's favorite uh, phrases that he uses throughout his letters. Four times, just in this short passage here, Paul talks about how we are in Christ. <clears throat> this is actually every Christian's identity statement. 
Before you are your last name and from the family that you're from, before you're the color of your skin or the money that you make, before you are your career path, uh, before you are your success or your struggles, before you are anything, you are in Christ. That is your fundamental identity if you are a Christian. The theological term for being in Christ is justification. Right or good in the eyes of God. You can do no wrong in his eyes, even though you've done so much wrong, even today, even this morning, even tomorrow. So much wrong, but in his eyes, you can do no wrong. How is this possible? The Bible says it. The reformers and the Protestant Reformation uh, unpacked it. This rightness or justification that we have in the eyes of God is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. All you need to present to God in order to have his favor and his smile is Jesus Christ and nothing else. That's it. Jesus Christ and nothing else. Paul puts it this way in the 15th verse. By works of the law, which is another way of saying by cleaning up your act, by adding anything to what Jesus Christ has already done for you through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, by works of the law, no one will be justified. The Heidelberg Catechism, this is where, you know, the, the, the theologians of history help us in wonderful ways. The Heidelberg Catechism is a a long document uh, that that sort of unpacks in different categories uh, the the fundamental teachings of Scripture. And in the 60th question, 60, 60th question, it answers the question, based on biblical teaching, how are you righteous before God? Or how are you justified or right in the eyes of God? And the answer is this, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commands, have never fully kept any of them, and I am still inclined to all evil, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I had never committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. So I want to go back to this phrase, God through grace imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. To impute is to attribute to or to ascribe to. What does it mean in this context? It means to give credit for. And and if you go to 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, the 21st verse, we get a picture of a double imputation that has happened. It says there that God made him, Jesus Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness 
of God. In other words, when we believe in Jesus Christ, in the eyes of God, in the eyes of God, Jesus, and, and by the way, this, this was consensual between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit from before time that it would play out this way. Jesus, in the eyes of God, is held responsible for all the wrong in us. And we are given acclaim, praise, credit for everything that is right in Jesus. So in college, if you would go to a fraternity party, at some point in the evening, you might hear somebody say, well, he's got the beer goggles on, or she's got the beer goggles on. That means in the fraternity context, you've become so intoxicated that someone that you wouldn't be attracted to sober becomes really attractive when you're intoxicated. Our Father in heaven with full sobriety, nothing inebriated at all about his perspective, in full sobriety, looks at us even on our worst day and in our worst season and says with the Song of Solomon, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Or with Zephaniah, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with loud singing. With abundant clarity and sobriety and vision, through Jesus Christ, that's how God sees you. You can do no wrong in his eyes. The Bible describes the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to believers in Christ as a Christian's clothing or a garment. That's the metaphor that's used. This is an Old Testament concept as well as a new, by the way. Don't ever think that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament aren't the same because they're 100% the same, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, the prophet says this, <coughs> excuse me. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of of righteousness. Now, if you go to Luke 15, which is, uh, contains perhaps Jesus' most famous parable, the parable that is often referred to as the prodigal son, it's really about a loving father who receives both a smug, self-righteous son and a runaway son. But with respect to the runaway son, with respect to the prodigal, uh, the prodigal or the lost son's contribution to the relationship was this, sin, rebellion, and disdain for the father. Can you imagine, moms and dads, one of your children saying to you, can you, just, can you just give me my inheritance now? Can you just give me what's coming to me after you die so I can run off and live my life? I'm pretty much done with you, but I want your stuff. Can you imagine if a, a child of yours asked you that question, and that's precisely what the child asks of the father. The father grants it, he runs away. 
wild living, independent living. Uh, He makes a train wreck of his life, as we always do when we seek independence from God. Makes a train wreck of his life. And he comes home like a dog with the tail tucked between the legs, remorseful, with apologies already rehearsed, taking ownership for the things that he's done, and he starts begging. Father, can, can I come back as a slave I get the elements out here, they're destroying me. I'm realizing now that I can't live without your help. I can't survive without you. He's got this beggar posture. And so that's his contribution. But what's the father's contribution to the relationship and the arrangement? A lover's posture. My son, all I have is yours. All I have is yours. Come home. I'm going to slaughter the fatted calf, I'm, I'm gonna, which is just biblical code for this is going to be the biggest barbecue party that this village has ever known, and we're going to invite everybody to celebrate your homecoming. And then the other contribution the father makes is garments. Puts a ring, the family ring, the signet ring, on his son. That, that's like baptism. It's a sign that you belong. I don't want you as a slave. I want you back as my son. He gives him shoes which enable him to walk forward in the life that's been given to him. And he puts a robe on him, a royal robe, a picture of the robe of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you know, we live our day to day, we deal with our guilt, we deal with our shame, we deal with our regrets, we we deal with things that other people don't like about us, that we don't like about us. And, and, you know, maybe some of us, more days than not, we feel like if we do think of God, we think, well, he must be pretty disappointed with what we've turned out to be. There are days where, in other words, we don't feel clothed in this way. We feel more like naked people, exposed, vulnerable. I imagine that Peter and Barnabas in the writing of this passage, which by the way is is written in a context to address something that Peter and Barnabas had done. The apostle Peter and Barnabas, the son of encouragement, both of them it says have, have stepped out of line with the gospel of Jesus Christ and started to exclude people, started to fall into elitism, started to fall into this, hey, Jewish culture is superior culture and so we won't eat with these Gentiles anymore. We're gonna separate ourselves. We're gonna be different. We're gonna be special. We're gonna be precious. We're no longer you know, carrying forward a consciousness of, of being God's, God's chosen people. No, we're his choice people. We're the special ones. So Peter and Barnabas fell into that lunacy. And Paul writes things like this in order to address it. It's not Christ plus your Jewishness. It's not Christ plus your culture, your way of doing things that makes you right. It's Christ plus nothing else. but we don't feel clothed. Just like Paul maybe didn't feel clothed when he wrote Romans 7 and talked about his own struggle with coveting, which is just another word for envy. Rejoicing when others mourn and mourning when others rejoice, that's envy. We don't feel clothed so much of the time. We have this naked feeling, but did you know, and I think this is part of what Paul is communicating, did you know that that naked feeling that we have is actually given to us by God as a gateway into grace, specifically the experience of the grace that's already ours. You know, Leonard Cohen in his magnificent lyric, uh, the song Anthem, famous words, forget your perfect offering. 
There's a crack in everything, and that's how the light gets in. Romans 7, Paul talks about his coveting. He says, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's the crack in me. Like there's a crack in everything. Forget my perfect offering. Forget getting my act together, cleaning myself up. It's a crack in me, but that's how the light got in. And then we get Romans 8, possibly the most magnificent chapter that's ever been written in the history of the world. Many theologians say that if you want a one-chapter summary of the whole story of redemption, it's right there in Romans 8, which starts, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There it is again, in Christ Jesus. And then at the end, nothing in all of Romans 8, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love that is in Christ. There it is again. Do you like my boots? Have you noticed them? Ty noticed them this morning. Thank you for noticing my boots. Had a little bit of fun at my own expense a couple of weeks ago, talking about a couple of Nashville friends who said, I gotta get some real boots and get rid of those New York City boots that only come to my ankles. So I got some boots. So imagine these 11 and a half, the size 11 and a half boots. Imagine someday maybe I have a grandson. I don't know. I'm not holding either of my daughters to that. But, but maybe one day I have a grandson and I decide to give these size 11 and a half boots to my grandson, my three-year-old grandson, let's say, hypothetically, with feet that are this big. Maybe a little boy size two. And... It's going to take his entire lifetime to grow into those boots, or at least half of his lifetime, or at least until he's 18 or 19, right? To grow. And maybe he'll never, maybe he'll only get to a size nine or 10. He'll never fully grow into them. It'll always feel a little bit awkward, but over time, it'll feel less and less awkward for him as his feet grow more into the boots. That doesn't change at all the fact that from the very moment of the gift, the boots are 100% his. 100% his garments. And that's what brings us to Christ in us. There's us in Christ, that's our identity statement. Christ in us is our irreversible trajectory to become like him, to grow in the direction of becoming like him. The theological term for this is sanctification, which is a process of essentially conforming to the boots that that God has given you. Growing into the robe of righteousness that he's clothed you with, which is as large as Jesus Christ himself. Becoming who we've already been declared to be. Becoming what God sees when he looks at us. Greatest mistake, one of the greatest mistakes, and all of Galatians addresses this mistake, one of the greatest mistakes that a Christian can make is to to come to Christ by faith and then start to try to grow in Christ by human effort. If you have stunted progress in your growth toward Christ, I want to submit to you and also to myself It is not because we are behaving wrongly as much as it is that we are believing wrongly. We are believing in ourselves. As soon as we start to try to grow in a way that's different than the way that we first came into Christ, we come to Christ by faith, but then we try to grow by works of the law, by performing, in other words, by bringing it, 
putting our best foot forward instead of daily, starting every day by putting our worst foot forward, I, I, declaring our need, affirming our need before God so he can rush in with his mercy and his grace and his kindness and forgiveness and his mercies that are new every morning. But instead, we, we take the ball and say, we're gonna run with this now. Give me my inheritance and let me see what I can make of it. We make a train wreck of things. This is what happens when growth toward the likeness of Christ gets stunted. It's usually traced back to a belief problem. You're believing in the wrong thing. You're believing in you instead of believing in Christ. Paul says these words, I died to the law. I died to it. Does this mean that Paul is saying that obedience to the commands of God becomes optional once you come into Christ by grace through faith? Paul answers the question. In verse 17, he, he answers the question. He says, is Christ a servant and promoter of sin? No way. Should grace properly understood, will grace properly understood lead me to think I can, I'm just gonna live however the heck I want? No way, Paul says. Go to, go to another letter. Go to 1 Corinthians, also written by Paul. The entire letter almost, after he declares their identity in chapter one, you are in Christ, then he spends the rest of the letter confronting them for their sexual sin, for the divorces that are happening in their midst that don't have biblical grounds. Some divorces do have biblical grounds, but Corinthians were, were it was just ubiquitous. They were, they were just doing the no fault thing all over the place. Weren't working out, you know, gospel reconciliation or even trying. There were people with judgmental spirit. There was a judgmental culture. There was a divisive culture there. There was elitism and, 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 and the wealthy were neglecting the poor. Paul's calling out all of these things. He's calling them to obedience. So what, what he has to mean when he says, I died to the law is this. It means that, that he died to the idea that God helps those who help themselves. That's what it means to, to die to the law. It's the recognition that I cannot self-help my way out of a bad temper, selfishness, stinginess, greed, worry, moroseness, lying, addiction, sexual sin. I cannot self-help myself out of these things. I cannot go to Amazon and buy the five best books, the top five rated books on how to tackle this bad habit in my life. Because you know what? Once those book ar books arrive, I've already moved on to the next thing and I'll never even get around to reading the books, let, let alone applying what's in there. You ever done a New Year's resolution? I have. I think Paul must have felt this way in Romans 7 as well. In Romans 7, Paul, the way he describes his, his ongoing struggle against coveting and envy is, is very similar to the way that I think many of us would describe our own failed resolutions. The spirit is willing. I want to be better, but the flesh is weak. I can't. At least not with my own resources. So here's how the law of God works in the life of those who believe in Christ. Number one, it is there, first and foremost, to persuade us that our willpower is too weak. 
I've already covered that. Spirit is willing, flesh and weak. Flesh is weak. The next thing the law of God does is it, it serves as a tutor, as an educator, as a pointer. Your failure, remember that there's a crack in everything. Forget your perfect offering. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Eureka, your willpower can't accomplish it, but Christ can. Christ plus nothing else can. Remember our our own sense of smallness and weakness and failed willpower is a gateway. It's not a source of shame or guilt or self-contempt. It's a gateway to trust in the resources of Christ alone. And then the third thing that the law does after we've trusted in the resources of Christ is, is it reorients our desires and our trajectory. You know, we, we sang about it um, Kevin, thank you for reviving so many hymns that have been lost and buried, uh, like the one we sang this morning, Come Ye Souls by Sin Afflicted. Do you remember the line where it says, his commandments become our happy choice? His commandments, his commandments, his commandments are happy choice. To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice turns a slave into a child and duty into choice. You cannot get away from sanctification when you've got the awareness of your justification. You can't. It's impossible. Paul puts it this way, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. What this means is the verdict has been pronounced and so I'm, I'm not gonna just sit here in the courtroom all the time rehashing my verdict because the judge has freed me to go out and live. Like Christians who hang out in the courtroom rehashing their verdict are living on the wrong side of the cross. We're supposed to live on the resurrection. We're supposed to live on the, we're supposed to visit the courtroom. We're supposed to live on the resurrection side of the cross. I no longer live, but Christ who is risen lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. The only way out of sin and into holiness is union with Christ. Us in Christ and Christ in us. If anyone is in Christ, Paul says, there it is again to the Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, new desires will start to come in over time. New trajectory will start to come in over time. Things you used to hate because you were opposed to God in your nature, you have started to love because you're now with God in your new nature. The things that you used to love because you were opposed to God in your, your deepest nature, you, you have now begun to hate because God has changed your nature so that you will love the things that he loves and, and hate the things that he hates and pursue the things that he pursues, like his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven and his will be done and so on. So St. Augustine, very well-known, broadly resourced, church father uh, in, his, in his very self-disclosing, transparent, uh, testimonial, 
book called Confessions. Talks about how before he had life in Christ, he was a sex addict, much like many in Nashville. Did you know that Nashville has more Sexaholics Anonymous meetings every week than any other city in the world? It's epidemic. Augustine was right there, addicted to porneia, to pornographic thoughts and behaviors and exploitations. One day he relays a a sort of post-conversion to Christ anecdote about how he he was walking on the street and he ran into a, a former girlfriend on the street and she says to him, Augustine, how are you? And, and he politely responds, I'm fine, thank you very much. It's, it's good to see you. And he was as polite as he could be and, and he started to walk away. And, and the woman who, whose memory of, of, of Augustine was that, that, that hey, you know, how about a one night stand for old time, time's sake? You know, how about we, we, we hook up, right? That, that's, that's the posture she's carrying. And so she's confused that this man who, who once couldn't get enough now is walking away. And she says to him, Augustine, it is I. And, and he responds to her, yes, I know, but it is not I. See, because the pure love of Christ is going to purify you. It's going to purify you in your love for God and it's going to purify your love for your neighbor. changes the entire direction and trajectory of your life. How about when we stumble? How about when we fail the test? How about when we do like Peter and Barnabas had, when we forget who we are? You know, the whole issue around Peter and Barnabas was they stopped eating with certain people that Christ was welcoming to his table. And Christ's answer to Peter and Barnabas, who were removing themselves from table fellowship from from other people that Christ loves because of cultural reasons. Christ's answer for them is is the same answer that he has for the people that they are hurting. An invitation to the table. Table fellowship. A table with a greeter. The greeter isn't the pastor. It's not the elders. It's not the deacons or the deaconesses. It's not... Anyone that you're going to see at the table, the greeter at the table is also the host, Jesus Christ himself, who through the table tells us, you can do no wrong in my eyes. You can do no wrong in my eyes because I've put some attire on you, given you a ring in your baptism that says you're mine, you belong. I've given you shoes or sandals or boots. Pick your... Pick your footwear so that you can walk forward. And I've put a robe of royalty, of righteousness on you. Remember who you are, Margaret Thatcher. You are royals. Every last one of you, you are royals in the eyes of God. And then he says to us, here's a feast. You know, the father in Jesus' parable he slaughters the fatted calf, right? Little do we know that, that, that he's only signaling what the father is going to do. 
And it's not gonna be a, a party for the village. It's gonna be a party for the whole world. And even as Romans 8 tells us, for the whole groaning creation and universe. But the calf that he's going to have to slaughter is the Lamb of God himself who will take away the sins of the world so that he can invite us to his table and say, this is my body given for you. This is my blood, which is shed for you. This, this gives a whole, this takes Christ in us to a whole new level. Christ has actually made himself digestible, not only spiritually, but, but physically through the table that he's put in front of us. Us in Christ, Christ in us, and a greeter as Spurgeon said, who always loves to forgive sin more than you love to commit it. His commandments, his commandments, his commandments, this is why his commandments become our happy choice. Thanks be to God. As the kids are making their way back in and as the servers make their way to your different respective tables. Please do that right now. I want to ask everybody to please stand. And we're going to make a confession together uh, from the Book of Common Prayer. It's an Advent confession, a reading for the second Sunday of Advent. Merciful God, who sent your messengers, the prophets, to preach repentance and prepare the way for salvation, give us grace to heed their warnings and forsake our sins that we may greet with joy the coming of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever, amen. Now what I wanna do is invite all of us to take a moment of silence and like that prodigal who came home to the Father, take some time to express your sorrow, to take ownership, and even to offer with open hands a beggar posture saying in whatever way that, that, that you might be led to do so, Lord, I know that all I have to offer you is Christ plus nothing else. Take some time and confess your weakness and your sin and your need to him now, and then in a moment, Pastor Todd will lead us to the table. Let's pray.